Glory to Jesus Christ. It is good to be back. Thank you all for your prayers and well wishes as uh, I recuperated from the flu, which then gave way to a cold, which is now finally on the way out. Uh, thank you for receiving Mark so well last week. Uh, I'm grateful for his friendship and uh, his willingness to fill in uh, when there's a need. He's a faithful and excellent preacher and teacher of God's word. And I'm always eager to listen to the audio whenever he steps uh, up here into the pulpit to, to preach from the Word of God uh, on a Sunday. But then I'm also a little scared that you won't want me back because he's so good. He's so good. We had this morning readings from Deuteronomy, 1 Corinthians, and Matthew. But we covered, remember, recently the hard sayings of Jesus, um, you know, pretty recently. And if you've missed those, you can go to our podcast page and and listen to that. So I'm not going to focus too much on the Matthew readings this morning because we've gone through many of those in depth already recently. Uh, I'm going to focus a little bit uh, from the text here uh, in Deuteronomy about life and death, blessing and cursing, choosing life. So when I was 13 years old, my dad, he took me to the movies. I was 13 and we went to go see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? So in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, he and his estranged father, you know, they're looking for the Holy Grail to try to, to beat the Nazis to it. And at the end of the movie, and I'm not going to say spoiler alert because it came out in 1989. So, I mean, if you haven't seen it by now, that's on you. The statute of limitations on spoilers has run out by this time, right? So he finds his way through all the booby traps, followed right behind by the villain. And he comes into this room where there's this uh, ancient looking knight and he's in a room full of chalices. And so he asks the old knight, what's, what's up, buddy? And, he, and the knight says, you know, you have to choose from all of these. There's only one. The true grail will bring you life. And he says, the false grail will bring you death. Indiana walks into the room, uh, the villain walks into the room, and he's like, which one is it? So Indiana, trying to be sneaky, he finds the chalice that's the most beautiful. It's the most beautiful. It's the shiniest. It's got beautiful jewels on it. it is, it's gorgeous. It looks rich and fancy. And so he chooses that and he gives it to the bad guy. And, he's, and he, the bad guy's like, this is the cup of the king of kings, impressed by its gaudiness. And so he drinks it. And of course, he dies. He dies horribly, having chosen poorly. Then Indiana Jones, he looks around and then he finds a simple, humble wooden cup. And he says, that's the cup of a carpenter. No jewels, nothing fancy, just a humble little wooden cup. He drinks from it and he does not die. He chose rightly. One choice brought life, one choice brought death. It was a hard choice, but it was the right choice. And he was able to see through the hard choices to find the right one. So in the reading from Deuteronomy, that, that kind of reminded me of that, of, that, of that movie where Moses is sort of, well, sort of he is. He's, he's doing his last sermon before the children of Israel. So let's go back in time a little bit to the distant past. There's an old man. He's sitting on a hill in front of a mass of people. He's got gnarled old sun, darkened hands, so curled around the staff that he's carried for more than 40 years. He's had a long, hard life. He was raised by those who took his people and his slaves. He ran away after murdering someone, beating one of his people. He found refuge at a mountain, and he lived as a shepherd for decades. He was finally called out of the burning bush to go back from, to the country where he escaped, 
and to lead the children of Israel out of captivity. And he did so with many signs and wonders. He led them to God's holy mountain where they immediately fell into idolatry and he interceded with God to not destroy them. He had led them to the edge of the land promised by God only to be cast away because the people disobeyed and believed the poor report of the spies. He led them through the wilderness, through battles and travel, and after 40 years of wandering, he brought them back to the edge of the promised land. And he himself was not able to go in because he also failed during this time of wandering. So he knew his time was coming to an end, and he knew what had happened last time they had gotten to the, close to the promised land. And so what he did was he gathered all of the people of Israel together, and he says, remember all of that trash that you did last time? And they all said together, yes. He said, don't do that again. And they said, okay. And he says, because if you do that again, then all of this is going to happen to you. And they're like, we know. And then he says, if you do all of this other stuff, it's going to go well for you in the land. And they said, okay, Moses. He's worried for his people. He reminds them of the covenant God had made with them, a bond deeper than words like relationship can, can convey. They accepted this covenant and subsequently broke it over and over again. He warns them against falling back into the sins that they fell prey to in the past, so they will not fail when they enter the promised land. Before them is life or death, blessing or cursing. If they choose life, they will be blessed in the new land. If they choose death, then they will suffer in the new land and be subject to the whims of the surrounding nations. He's trying to, as a commentator named Clements notes, to appeal to them to reawaken and rearm them morally and spiritually. So what I'm going to call it this morning, which is also the title of this sermon, he's trying to reawaken their moral and spiritual imagination. And so we see then, they have this choice, life or death, blessing or cursing, destruction, or as the NIV puts it, prosperity. Which one will they choose? And it's interesting to note that after, Joshua, after Moses dies, his successor Joshua is then tasked to lead the children of Israel. And so just as Moses led the people of God through the Red Sea, what does Joshua do when they come to the Jordan River? They take the Ark of the, God, the, Ark of the Covenant, and as soon as they set foot in there, what happens to the water of the Jordan? Just like the Red Sea parts and the people of God enter into the promised land, right? And we know that the walking through the Red Sea and the walking through the Jordan River are pictures, are types of our baptism, of our entrance into Christ, our putting on Christ, as St. Paul puts it. And it's then once they cross through the Jordan River into the promised land, then we see they am actually able for a time to successfully do what Moses said to do, to choose life. And as they choose life, things go very well for them. But as they choose death, as we see later on in books like Judges, remember when we did that series, well, three years ago now, right, on this, when we went through Judges? If you remember, they did a lot of naughty things in the book of Judges. Things wound up going horribly wrong for them. But their moral and spiritual imagination was reawakened by their entrance into Christ. So you might be thinking to yourself, reawakening morally and spiritually there's no link between our morals 
and our, our spirituality? And I'd respond with, no, there's a, a, a massive link between our spirituality and our morality. In fact, our spirituality informs our morality and plays a massive part in the formation of our moral imagination. I just finished reading a wonderful book called Dominion by a historian named Tom Holland, and he observes that Western morality has as its fundamental basis the morals given to it from the Christian tradition. And many are not aware of this and just sort of take it for granted, right? That of course we should care for the poor. Of, of course we should clothe the naked and feed the hungry without ever examining where that moral impulse came from. Now when I talk about the imagination, I'm not just talking about the way in which we paint or write or sing or play music or make art, but the way our imagination opens the possibility for us to be able to do those things. But it also, our imagination opens up the possibility for us to know and to choose. And the way we use our imagination and knowing is through thought experiments. Right? So the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says thought experiments use imaginary scenarios to elicit responses that grant people knowledge of possibilities. In other words, it enables us to think of different possibilities and the resulting consequences of choosing different things. And this part of us, that is the imagination that needs to be morally and spiritually reawakened. So you might be here thinking to yourself, well, duh, right? Life or death, blessing or cursing, of course I'm going to choose life. It's super easy. Well, not quite so easy. Right? I like to think of it kind of like as a door, right? There's two doors. On the one side, I'm right-handed, so on the right hand, that'll be the door of life, right? So the, on the right hand, you have a door that says life on it. On the left hand, the left hand side, you have a door on it that says death. You would think that most people, when coming up between the two doors, would say, oh, there's life, I'm going to go through it right there and, and go through. But most people, when confronted with life or death, blessing or cursing, they walk through the door marked death. They walk right through because our ability to choose has been damaged in some way. Because we think and we have been led to believe that the door marked death is the door that is actually going to maximize our happiness, that that door marked death is actually the door that's going to fulfill us and lead us to true satisfaction. Don't believe me? Here's some examples from scripture, right? So think back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The first human beings, after God creates everything that exists, he sets them in a place of provision, right? The garden. And he gives them a task to fill the earth and to spread his divine image over everything that God has created. The Garden of Eden is essentially, this is temple terminology when you read these these stories in Genesis, you know, the earth is a temple with the garden. Well, the earth is created, Eden is a temple and humanity are the priests bringing God's holy presence everywhere. After all, all of this happens. God says, everything is yours. Everything I have made is for you. Everything. You can eat anything, do it. It is all for you, except this one thing. Don't do this one thing. If you do, you will die. So we know the story. They obey God, they don't eat the fruit, and the earth remains a place of God's presence and peace, free from the ravages of sin and death. No, they don't listen. 
when God actually sets before them life and death, blessing and cursing, they choose death, actual mortality. The sin Athanasius reminds us, instead of remaining in the state in which God had created them, they were in the process of becoming corrupted entirely, and death had them completely under its dominion. When given the choice, they chose death and lost the mercy of God. Solomon cuts a huge figure in the Bible, right? He inherits the kingdom from David. And just like his father, God tells Solomon, if you serve me faithfully, I will make your line endure forever. And God even grants him wisdom beyond that of anyone else. He was told in Deuteronomy, right? No less, not to do certain things, right? There's a, there are passages in Deuteronomy that says, when you have a king, they shouldn't take multiple wives from all over these different countries. You shouldn't have an excess of horses and a bunch of other stuff. So what do you think the wisest person of his time did when it came down to it, life or death? He started off okay. He built the kingdom, constructed the temple, but his heart was swayed by doing what he was told not to do. He took multiple wives from other lands who did not serve the Lord, who led him astray in worship of other gods. He chose death, and the kingdom was ripped away from his son. So in light of this, how are our moral and spiritual imaginations opened so we can even choose life in the first place? Now thinking about that, while I was preparing for this sermon, I was listening to a podcast, and I was reminded of an ancient Christian document called the Didaki, which is the teaching, right? It is an early Christian document written in between 50, maybe some people place it between 50 and 70, some people place it between 50 and 150, but pretty much everyone agrees it is a very early Christian document. And it contains very early instruction regarding things like baptism and how to treat traveling ministers and following, and, and you know, the bishops and the governance of the church. It's divided up into two halves, right? The second half has all that stuff that I just listed. But the first half deals with what it calls the way of life and the way of death. And it begins like this. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. This sounds to me very similar to what God says in Deuteronomy. I have set before you life and good, death and evil, and I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Notice here the similarity the Didache then lays out the way of life by summarizing the commands of Jesus. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Give to those who ask. Turn to the other cheek. All of those hard sayings of Jesus that we dealt with a few months back. And all of the things, a big selection of them that we heard read to us this morning. If you have something against your brother or sister, be reconciled to them before you come to worship the Lord. The way of life, the section ends with, do not in any way forsake the commandments of the Lord, but keep what you have received, neither adding or taking away. This sounds to me like what we heard in Deuteronomy. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, that I command you by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his way, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you 
in the land that you are entering to take possession of. And we even heard it in the call to worship from Psalm 119 this morning. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I will not be put to shame having fixed my eyes on all of your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous laws. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The way of life is to love the Lord our God and keep the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the way of life. The way of death, then, would be the opposite by not keeping the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ and what results from them. By not loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. By not loving our neighbor as ourselves. By not turning the other cheek when struck. By not giving to those who ask of us. The Didache lays out a whole series of sin. I won't read the full list because it's really long and it's by no means um, exhaustive. But not knowing a reward for righteousness, not cleaving to the good, not pitying the poor, not laboring for the afflicted, turning away from those who are in need, afflicting those who are distressed, idolatry, theft, witchcraft, hating truth, loving lies, Brothers and sisters, the awakening of our moral and spiritual imagination lets us use this as a template, as a guide, leading us to live holy and righteously in our good yet fallen and prone to evil world. As Deuteronomy says, if your heart turns away, you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. So how do we awaken that? How do we awaken our moral and spiritual imagination so we can choose life? The Dedeke says, in the church you shall acknowledge your transgressions and you shall not come near for your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. So we need to receive life before we can choose it. This sounds odd, but it's true. Because if we don't, then we will neglect the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like I said earlier in the sermon, the picture of the Red Sea and the people entering through and the picture of Joshua leading the people through the Jordan. These are types of Christian baptism, right? Of our initiation into the kingdom of God. When we receive the grace of God, when we are born from above, as the Gospel of John says, or it could also be translated as being born again. When we have received the grace of Christ, that enables us then to be able to choose between the two, the way of life and the way of death. And then once our moral and spiritual imaginations are opened by the grace of God, then we are able to choose life. Now to some, this might sound dangerously close to something called works righteousness, which is the idea that we can work our way to salvation by doing good things, that we can merit for ourselves God's freely given grace through moral effort. But following the commands of the Lord is not our striving to earn forgiveness from our sin. It is rather the striving of the person who has been given the grace of God. And it is here, brothers and sisters, in the church, where our moral and spiritual imaginations are renewed and awakened, first through baptism, but also through the hearing and the receiving of the word of God. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I would rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you 
the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before and taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at every moment is progressing to the one state or the other. And then only once, brothers and sisters, our moral and spiritual imaginations are renewed and reawakened can we then truly be free to create and use our imaginations to create art and music and poetry that display what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. Because what is good and what is true and what is beautiful is not subjective to the, to the whims of the person experiencing it, but they exist outside of that as something true and real. And we need this because the media and the art of our culture have become tools of social engineering to reinforce what culture says we are supposed to think and what we are supposed to believe. Brothers and sisters, we also need our moral and spiritual imaginations reawakened so we can recognize that. And following the commands of our Lord that we just heard from the Gospel of Matthew, you heard it said, but I say to you, can we stand contra to the ever-shifting values of our culture and the way that it gets force-fed down not only our throats, but the throat of our children? And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who through our entrance into his kingdom reawakens our moral and spiritual imagination, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and his all-holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen.